0: Welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, June 4th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico.
1: Good morning, everybody.
0: Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Hello. And my KHN colleague, Mary Agnes Carey. Welcome back, Mac.
2: Thanks, great to be here.
0: Later in this episode, we'll have an interview with Jonathan Oberlander, who's a health policy professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. He's also the editor of the Journal of Health Politics, Policy, and Law. The Journal has just released a series of papers on the very timely subject of the relationships between health inequities, structural racism, and COVID-19. But first, let's do the news. So last week we were talking about how states were taking baby steps at loosening their lockdowns, limiting groups to no more than 10 in most cases. Now we're seeing these massive demonstrations with even people who are trying to keep social distance being pushed together by other protesters and by police. And however important this moment is, there is still a pandemic out there. How big is the concern that we'll see a second spike in the coming days and weeks from all these people spending so much time crowded around each other?
3: It is a big concern. Um, I will put it in context, though, a lot of things are true at the same time. A lot more people are impacted by the lifting of the lockdowns and resuming normal business and going to restaurants and stuff than are participating in the demonstrations, even though those are large in many major cities. So... I think we can't necessarily attribute if a spike comes in a couple weeks, we can't necessarily attribute it to the protest because far more people are just, you know, gathering at restaurants and at friends' houses and going back to the office. That said, gathering thousands of people together in a protest setting is definitely a risk, especially if people are not wearing masks. When people are chanting and shouting, there is an increased uh, risk of contagion with droplets. And like folks we've interviewed and our reporting have said, the police tactics of herding people together into small spaces, arresting them, putting them in vans together, putting them in cells together is an even bigger risk, as well as the use of chemical irritants like pepper spray and tear gas that make people cough. You could have a lot of asymptomatic carriers that are spreading without knowing it.
1: It's interesting that some of the public health departments around the country are actually tweeting out advice on how to minimize risk. You can't eliminate it, but how to minimize risk and keep yourself safe at the protest. New York City is one of them. Obviously masks, you know, try to keep separate, be in a small group and keep your group away from another group, but crowds are not. I mean, they're crowds, <laughs> and even if you're trying to minimize your risk, you're in a crowd. And even if you're trying to keep a distance, other people are moving. And then, as Alice noted, the police are sort of compressing the crowds. Oh, Mac, you want to say something?
2: That's just the huge risk, right? You can start off socially distancing. Everybody's trying to abide by all the, the you know, the six foot and and uh, well, staying everybody. apart. Not everybody. Some people are, but if you, even if you're trying, if the perimeter is squeezed. If you are pushed back by law enforcement officials, a lot of these precautions can't be maintained. And that is definitely a concern.
3: And we know that outdoor is less risky than indoor. And so we're talking to a lot of people who are raising concerns about the mass arrests and people being held together in large groups in indoor settings, even if they're just being booked and released, that's taking many hours, um, as it always does when there are mass arrests. And so there are some real fears there.
0: And, you know, I feel like the the news has been rightly so all about, you know, the the protests, but we seem to have sort of forgotten that there really is a pandemic. I mean, Alice, you pointed out, you know, if there's a spike there, we saw last week we talked about, you know, the pool parties that people were having and all the people on the beaches and at the bars i mean you know we've seen I, I saw just this morning um some of the charts that showed a lot of states you know that the, the the big outbreaks are still going down but now we're starting to see spikes particularly in some of these southern states i mean this is where every other country seems to have you know really gotten a handle on this uh except us
3: yeah and if we're seeing spikes now that you know counting back we can look at the big memorial day gatherings where people were sort of getting the message from their local and federal leaders that, hey, you know, things are good. Have a good summer. Um, it, the worst is over. And that's not the case.
1: And it actually, there are a number of other countries that are in, in really bad shape. Uh, Brazil, uh, Egypt, I just read uh, this morning about Egypt. Um, there's some African Mexico. countries, Mexico. Um, so we're not the only ones who haven't figured it out, but we've had it longer. I mean, they reached there later. And um, we also have resources and supposedly the best public health agency in the world. And we have clearly made one mistake after another, both scientifically uh, and messaging and politically. So
0: I do want to talk about the
1: the reasons
0: for the protest. Um, I explore this in more depth in my interview with Jonathan Oberlander, but I want to raise it with the panel too. There's clearly a link between the pandemic and the sudden surge of concern about police treatment of people of color, particularly African American males. As wrenching as this past 10 days have been, have we possibly reached a tipping
2: point in at least bringing the problem of health inequities to the fore? I certainly hope so. I mean, it has to be in our conversation, it has to be examined by public officials, by public health officials, uh, by the electorate. I mean, I think that is one thing that really good outcome that could come out of this is a focus as a nation on healthcare inequities and how do we use our resources to solve them. I mean, we've all talked about this for years. We've all written about it, but I think it takes it to a whole nother level.
3: I've been surprised about how many like mainstream health groups and, and high-profile officials have expressed support for the goal of the protests and said, look, racism and police violence are public health issues too. And while there is a risk of going out to demonstrate in large groups, there's also a risk to doing nothing and allowing the status quo to continue. So that's been really interesting to see it with groups like AMA.
1: Um, and, but the other problem is that fixing some of these things costs money, and this country is not in good economic shape and may not be in some time. And there, there's going to be competing demands. And whether the people who have been, you know, had the short end of the health care stick are going to be prioritized. You know, obviously, it depends who wins the presidency. Obviously, it depends who controls the Senate. And it also depends on, you know, how much we decide as a society that it's time to finally care. Um, clearly, What happened in Minnesota has penetrated the national consciousness in in profound ways. That tape, that video, his words were extraordinarily painful for all of us to hear. But this isn't the first case. It was a particularly difficult one, but we've lost count of how many. The problem persists. It's one of many problems that persists. We don't yet know which problem is going to be prioritized. I do think there's a recognition. Even the nursing home um, situation, which we're all, I mean, the whole country's disturbed about, the deaths in the nursing home, a lot of that infection is coming in from staff that's asymptomatic. They're clearly not being negligent. I mean, not that there's no nursing homes that have problems. There are. But even in good nursing homes, they're having COVID and they're having deaths. Some of it is coming in from staff that doesn't know they're infected. Many of these staff are very low paid people who live in these hard hit urban communities. Many are Black. Many are immigrants. They're not paid well. They don't have sick leave. And they're the victims of the disparities and the inequities, and then they're bringing it to their workplace and um, infecting a particularly vulnerable population. It, it it comes back to testing, and it comes back to to healthcare equity.
0: Yeah, I just you know on on the one hand, I wonder you know we have seen we've certainly seen a national awareness about gun violence, and I think you know sort of the the reaction um, to the to the obviously to the to the Florida shootings were you know. Although we haven't seen anything happen because of it, and I wonder whether this is going to be more like that, where suddenly at least everybody is aware of the depth of the problem, or if, you know, maybe maybe something could actually happen in the context of other things. And I also wonder how much of this is, you know, people are so stir-crazy from the being cooped up inside that, you know, that every, everybody's fuse is shorter than it would normally be, Um and, and I wonder, you know, how much of this is that?
3: And that the people most affected by all of these different competing national <laughs> horrible problems are are the same groups So the people most um, impacted by the pandemic are the same people most impacted by police violence and, and are on the front lines of these protests. And so... I think that all of that stress and pain and seeing loved ones die from these multiple causes adds up and contributes, you know, it's traumatic and it spills out in, in these ways that we're seeing.
0: Well, it is not over, um, So I want to sort of talk more about international health. I know this seems like a million years ago, but it was really only six days ago that President Trump pulled the US out of the World Health Organizations or said he was pulling us out of the World Health Organization. It turns out he can't just do it. It's kind of like Britain leaving the EU. Uh, He needs Senate approval, and the US needs to pay the millions of dollars that we owe the UN agency. But I want to turn this around a little bit. Why would it
2: be important for the US to stay in the WHO? They're coordinating vaccine trials and looking at the global... Uh, growth of the pandemic and the response. And if we leave that table, we, you know, could maybe not get access to vaccines that we need or information that we need. I mean, it's just, you know, a lot of people have criticized this. It's just not a smart strategy.
1: Right, There's, and it's not just on, um, on, on the coronavirus. It's also on HIV AIDS, tuberculosis, malaria, developing the flu vaccine for next year and then the year after, many things, whatever the flaws of WHO are. And I think it will be hard to find somebody who says, it's flawless, but they have a pivotal role. They're a nexus of global health. They've made mistakes. There's no country in the world that has not made mistakes on coronavirus. The best of them have made mistakes. There's too much we just don't know about it. It's too big a problem. We can't wrap our, you know, we're learning every day. And some of what we think, You know, some of what we thought we know in February, we found it is wrong in June. And some of what we think is right in June, where we're going to probably learn by September is wrong. So, you know, whatever the problems with the the WHO bureaucracy, their response to relationship to China or whatever, they are the World Health Organization. And the United States, last time I looked, was still part of the world.
3: And by withdrawing as their biggest financial contributor, it hurts both us and them and the rest of the world. And it loses us the influence in the future. And I want to point out that President Trump sent this open letter to the WHO saying, you have 30 days to make reforms. The reforms were not exactly detailed. And then after 11 days, President Trump said... You haven't made the reforms. We're leaving. So it was not really a transparent opportunity for the WHO to, you know, address the, the concerns raised by the United States. But um, we're going to lose that soft power and influence. And if the criticism is that the WHO is too deferential to China, this will only increase that, if anything.
1: The other thing is that the WHO is a vehicle for us to participate. Not just do we get things; it's a vehicle for the CDC to participate around the world, and that includes earlier surveillance and, th- you know, seeing, helping detect things that might hurt us. Obviously, this wasn't detected fast enough. It wasn't told. The rest of the world didn't learn fast enough. There's all sorts of things that went wrong in December and January, but the CDC's international role is facilitated through the WHO. That directly benefits us, and it benefits the world because for all the mistakes the C- CDC has made in this pandemic, and we're going to be looking and examining those for you know months, if not years, to come. The CDC, also working with WHO, was one of the ways that you know we we eliminated smallpox. We made huge gains around the world in childhood diseases and infant mortality. and and childhood vaccination. Um, We have not eradicated polio, but we've certainly made huge gains. We've come close to eradicating. There have been setbacks in that campaign. That was also CDC and WHO. There's a long list, Going back to the smallpox efforts in the 60s where the CDC and the WHO have worked hand in hand and, and you know, soft power matter, you know, what, without getting into a, you know, a Samantha Powers debate here, being a good global neighbor probably has some benefits to the United States and it certainly has had benefits to the children's lives that were saved.
0: And there are, I will point out, there are still outbreaks of Ebola going on in Africa, which the WHO is working on, which, you know, if you think the coronavirus is scary, wait until, you know, you have a a worldwide pandemic of Ebola. Um, So it's not like the the WHO is is sitting on its hands. Um, All right, well, back to the U.S. Um, It was only a couple of weeks ago that we talked about whether the COVID crisis would convince some of the 14 holdout states that haven't expanded Medicaid to change their minds. Well, apparently that was exactly backwards. Now we are hearing that some of the states that were planning to expand or at least tiptoeing in that direction are pulling back because of the impact the pandemic has had on their state budgets. Apparently, Kansas has put its plan on hold. California isn't going to expand its Medicaid program further. And Colorado has put off a debate over a public option that we talked about here a few months ago.
1: I think Oklahoma um, maybe.
0: Uh, yes, I th- although I think it's on the ballot, but Oklahoma is also looking back. So we've talked a lot about how when this is all over, people are going to have a very different view of the healthcare care system uh, and the need for everyone to have access to it. On the other hand, as I think, Joanne, you pointed out earlier, we are digging an enormous fiscal hole at the moment for state, federal and local governments. So which side is going to prevail here?
1: I think we know that the states that want to expand are going to have to do it more slowly. I think that's a likely scenario given the fiscal hole. The rest of it, I think, is going to depend on the elections. And the elections, both at the state and local level, and, you know, who your governor is makes a di- makes a difference in Medicaid decisions. Who your state legislature is makes a difference. Medicaid is shaped by states, state and federal funded. But on the ground, states decide whether to expand or not. Um, they decide a lot of things about who to cover and how much to cover and, and what to give people. Some things are mandated by the federal government, some things are up to the states. There's just not going to be a lot of money. And how we allocate money, including for health coverage, uh, you know, whether it's adding subsidies to make the exchanges more affordable, which some states have talked about, California, among others, um, you know, whether it's Medicaid expansion, whether it's what kind of benefits you're getting for the current Medicaid population, or the, the states that have already expanded, every dollar is going to be scrutinized going forward. And there's going to be so many needs. I mean, our educational system is going to have a lot of needs. We're dealing with so many problems and they're not going to go away fast. And it, there won't be one answer. It'll be different in different states. There's clearly going to be attention paid to the fact that tens of millions of people, maybe 30 or 40, we don't know yet, are going to not, are losing their insurance through their jobs. Some of them are are getting onto Medicaid, some of them are getting onto the exchanges, but some of them are getting Cobra. Some of them can get health care through a spouse or a partner. Clearly, the gains we've made in covering people have pretty much been shot. We have tools. The difference between now and 2008 is we do have the ACA. Whatever its flaws are, we do have Medicaid. We do have the ACA. We have expansion in most states. We have tools to cover more people, that those tools did not exist in prior economic crises. But we still have. A lot of uninsured people. But money
2: may also impact the ability to use those tools at the federal level, right? If Joe Biden were to win the White House, if Democrats were to take the Senate back, um, they would have probably the slimmest of margins. So that will hurt their ability to, if they wanted any kind of changes to the ACA to help these folks or additional money for Medicaid to states or the public option. All those debates, I think, are going to be a lot harder to have at the federal level. And you may have, you know, hospitals who cut back on the elective procedures and variety of things that raise them a lot of revenue during COVID will probably come back and push even harder against any kind of public option financing change. So, this revenue impact, it's hitting at the federal level, at the state level, and it could really sideline a lot of these debates, as you talked about earlier, Julie, that were heating up in the states, whether it be the public option or the Medicaid expansion. So we could see these effects lasting for quite a while.
1: Even though the Trump administration did not create a special enrollment period and did not facilitate, make it easier for people to enroll, people who have lost their jobs. There's a time window, and for some of them, it's already over, but there, if, if you know about it, you can still enroll. It's not easy. That's sort of a long story. But by October or November, whenever next enrollment season starts, I guess it's November, um, people can enroll again unless the Supreme Court throws out Obamacare by the, between now and then. And you will see, presumably you'll see a lot more people getting coverage than through the exchanges. That will mean um, more money will be spent on subsidizing them. And I would think it would be less likely for states to look to since, I, I'm not sure that we'll see expansion to higher, more subsidies for the higher and the the middle class as opposed to the working class or they were working until they lost their job class. I think the there'll be more money spent on the newly uninsured, given the current subsidy structure of the exchanges. I'm not sure we'll see um, up to, you know. 450 or 500 or 600 percent of poverty that some blue states have been talking about a couple I don't know that we'll see that right away because the priority is going to probably go to the people who are further you know down. the are 20 percent uninsured or whatever we're going to have by November December hopefully oh, less you
3: want to add something I'm not sure how the fight will play out politically because conservatives who were already opposed to expansion before and made the argument that states can't afford it. They have more of a leg to stand on now, particularly given that states can't do deficit spending uh, and any spending in one area will mean cut somewhere else. Um, the federal government can. The federal government could send a bunch of money towards these programs if they wanted to. Um, our current federal government does not want to, obviously, um, but we don't know. They already did send right, a lot of right. They just don't want to yes. send any more. Exactly. Yeah. But also, I think that with so many newly uninsured people, you could see more of a constituency and clamoring for things like Medicaid expansion. I mean, we, we saw sort of the rise of defensive of Medicaid and in, in being very influential in the 2018 election. And we could see more of that going forward. And we could also see more of the discussion of questioning tying insurance to employment to the extent we do in this country. And what happens to that during a mass unemployment um, event given that people are not likely to all Regain their jobs, and the economy is not likely to bounce back very quickly. Yeah, we will, we will see how this goes. All right, one more
0: this week. Um, something that happened, I think, at midnight between Friday and Saturday. So I don't think it got nearly as much coverage as it should have. The Supreme Court ruled against two churches in two states, California and Illinois. Actually, I think it was three churches in two states that were challenging governors' inclusions of religious services in their public health restrictions on large gatherings. What was most notable out about this, at least I think, is that Chief Justice John Roberts not only sided with the four liberal justices, but wrote his own brief opinion, basically asserting the primacy of public health in this case. I'd suggest that that would be a one-off for Roberts, but he seems to be making kind of a habit these days of tacking to the middle, if you will. Um, what do you guys take away from this? And does it suggest something for the, the ACA case that, uh, that we're going to see later this fall?
1: We don't know what he's going to do on the AC. I mean, we've he's held it. He's upheld it before. He doesn't like it. He held his nose, but on legal grounds, he upheld it. So, do we sort of anticipate for him to uphold it again? There's reason to think that, but I don't know that that we think he's always going to be a five-four. He won't be. In th- this case was interesting because the other conservatives on the court said that the you know California and the other states were discriminating they were letting businesses have 50% capacity and churches only 25 I believe other people have pointed this out too it you know in a church you're there for several hours you're singing you're you know in a, in a store you're going in and out or you're picking something up and leaving it's not this you're not necessarily sitting next to somebody and he just said you know we're a court we're not public health people I'm, I'm going to let the public health people handle this one I mean we've seen We've seen more than a one-off with Roberts. I don't know that we've seen a pattern that will, you know, the Supreme Court is the Supreme Court. You never really quite know what they're going to do.
2: Yes, good good. But he's
1: certainly been interesting to watch. All
0: right, so that is the news for this week. Now we will play my interview with Jonathan Oberlander. Then we will come back and do our extra credits. We are pleased to welcome to the podcast one of my favorite academics, Jonathan Oberlander. John is a professor of health policy at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, where he teaches and writes interesting stuff about Medicare, the Affordable Care Act, and the politics of our health care system in general. But we've asked him here today because of another hat he wears as editor of the Journal of Health Politics, Policy, and Law. This week, the journal posted early and free to the public for three months, a series of articles under the heading COVID-19 politics, inequalities and pandemic literally could not be more timely. John, welcome to What the Health.
4: It's great to be with you.
0: So you wrote in your introduction to the articles that they are the journal's, quote, first effort to make sense of the pandemic as a political, social, and comparative phenomenon that's likely to redefine public health, health policy, and health politics for years to come. I want to start by asking you to explain To explain, if you can, why the sudden outburst of outrage at something that has literally been happening in public for years, a black male dying at the hands of police, has everything to do with the ongoing pandemic.
4: Yeah, I mean, like structural racism um, is built into the fabric of the United States. It was built into our Constitution, literally. And we have these periodic episodes, Ferguson, Missouri, for example, where uh, it boils over, but we're having the intersection right now of two events that reflect structural racism and reflect inequality. And that is the pandemic and the racist murders that we've seen in the past couple of weeks and months. And those two things are intersecting, I think, in a, in a profound way that's calling new attention to these inequalities that are not new themselves, of course.
0: I'm still kind of struck by how many white people have struggled to find some sort of biologic reason why African-Americans and other people of color are more likely to get and die from COVID-19 without, for a minute, thinking about how they're more likely to be essential workers, more likely to use public transportation to live in crowded conditions and lack access to good medical care. Is this perhaps a turning point for the issue of health inequality and social determinants of health?
4: I hope it is, but I don't know. we can count on that. There is a um, long history, not just in the United States, of scientific racism, of trying to postulate inherent health differences that reflect differences in genetic makeup and and biology and so forth. And um, that, by and large, has been junk science. And um, what really is, uh, some of the authors in our special issue take pains to emphasize, what really is happening here is a reflection of racism not race as as a biological or genetic um, concept. Um, There is profound attention right now, profound urgency. Right now, I think a um, reawakened sense of the structural factors that determine health and racialized health inequities, whether that persists um, one month from now, six months from now, a year from now, I don't know and it's as many people have said it's not enough to talk about this week it's the same story over and over we keep having these episodes and talking about it the question is are we actually going to do anything
0: I was particularly struck by Sarah Gallus piece about public communication failures Getting out a public health message has always been hard. Um, Obviously, it is a long academic exercise figuring out the best way to connect to the public with health information. Obviously, today, where everybody gets their information from different places and everything is politicized, it's even harder. Is this something where sort of public health communicators are going to have to go back to the drawing board and really rethink how they try to communicate with the public?
4: It's, it's a new challenge, and as that piece by Sarah and uh, Rebecca Nagler and Erica Franklin Fowler shows, uh, the response to this pandemic, communication to this pandemic, has been mediated very powerfully by partisanship, and we know that Democrats and Republicans have responded differently, um, not just in in how they think about the pandemic and how serious they regarded uh, coronavirus, but in the actions they have taken or not taken. And we've seen that red-blue divide, that partisan divide in the media, we've seen it in public response, we've seen it in state responses, and the politicization of health, which is really what that piece is about, I think is a um, powerful challenge for public health communication about how do we get a message out that should be a unified message about public health that should not be partisan. How do we get that out in an environment that is so thoroughly thoroughly politicized and so thoroughly partisan.
0: And you alluded to this earlier, we in the U.S. and in most of the world have such short attention spans right now. It seems suddenly the news media has forgotten we're still in the middle of a pandemic. How do you get people and policymakers who also have short attention spans to pay the kind of sustained attention it's going to take
4: to make progress on difficult problems like these? It's, it's a great question, particularly because this pandemic had been predicted by public health professionals for years and people who specialize. And this had said, it's just a matter of time when it's coming. And yet, as you can see, um, clearly our preparations were inadequate. And this question of issue attention s- cycle and um, our attention spans in, in these days of smartphones and these days of Twitter and everything else is so short and I think in a way it it really rests on leadership and that's a problem right now in the United States because we do not have the kind of leadership that's thinking long term and thinking long term beyond the next news cycle about the kind of investments we need to make, the kind of changes in social policy and public health we need to make.
0: Is there something good that might come out of all of this? I mean everything feels so bleak right now but at least people are paying attention.
4: Yeah, it's, 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 this is a really dark cloud or series of clouds, and I think it's hard to find a silver lining. I do think at least in the short term, people recognize and see the importance of public health. And um, we often just forget about public health. Politically, it faces challenges, largely because its successes are invisible. The fact that I can walk outside and the air is clean here in North Carolina, the water that I drink is in good shape. That's a result of public health success, but because it's successful, we don't think about the fact that it's due to it. So I think we are in a moment where um, the primacy of public health has risen. And as we talked about earlier, hopefully we're in a moment where really, we have changed something fundamental about talking about health equity and racism in this country. But again, um, time will be the test.
0: Well, thank you for this package of articles. They are very thought-provoking. Jonathan Oberlander, thank you for joining us.
4: Thank you so much.
0: Okay, now it's time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash health. Joanne, why don't you go first this week?
1: Okay, this one has a really long headline, and I s- scribbled it down. You'll have to bear with me. It's by ProPublica Illinois. It's by Mick Dubke and Haro Cornyn, whose uh, names I may have mangled. And the headline is... Senior citizens in subsidized housing have been dying alone at home, unnoticed because of social distancing. Basically, it's what it says. It's people uh, living in these, there there were systems for checking on vulnerable people. Those systems have largely fallen apart because of of social distancing. Um, You know, some people have died, they're dying alone. I, I would point out, I would like to point out two things. Even if you do have a greater Capacity to check on people. This would still happen. So you can check on somebody at nine o'clock, and they can still die alone at noon. In some cases, you'd see the red flags. You'd see someone was deteriorating. You'd, you'd see signs, and you could get help. And as you know, I asked Julie's um, forbearance on this earlier this week. Um, this happened to a close friend of mine this week, um, a college friend of mine, a close college friend of mine who has fought um, severe mental illness for decades. You know, really difficult life and very severe illness. Her name was Bonnie, and um, she died alone in her apartment uh, in New York last week. And she did not have COVID as far as I know, but she still died of COVID. And she, had, she did have people checking on her. I was one of them. But if you have a mental illness, and we've talked about this, and she was overcome. The, the fear that we all feel and the anxiety we all feel, it got bigger than her. And it shrunk her world to the point where she was afraid of everything, including the water in her own apartment. So, yeah, she died alone. And... Um, in Section 8 housing, uh, and I consider her death to be caused by COVID, even though that's not what her death certificate will say. So if you live in a building with old people, find some safe, socially distant way. You can knock on their door and say, are you okay?" And then call someone if they're not.
2: Mac. So mine is uh, a story written by our KHN colleague, Liz Sabo, uh, police using rubber bullets on protesters that can kill, blind, or maim for life. And the thing I thought that was really important about this story is it just went through the health impacts of these crowd control techniques that police are using. The rubber bullets, they often have a metal core. They can penetrate the skin. They can break bones, fracture a skull, explode an eyeball, cause traumatic brain injuries. I mean, they're just phenomenal. And people should read this and think about it. Liz also goes through some of the other items that have been used by cops, the acoustic weapons, the sound cannons, the concussion grenades, they can harm hearing, and there are many, many others that she went through. So I think as we all look at the protests and look at the police response, looking at these crowd control techniques from the health standpoint, is incredibly important. And it's a story that has got a lot of pickup all over the country, because I think people are really interested in this and should read it. I know I was interested in this. I mean, you know, one of the things that we've seen on cable TV is reporters
0: getting, you know, tear gassed and hit with
2: rubber bullets on live TV. I mean, you haven't seen the pictures on Twitter, look. Yeah. Because they're incredible.
0: Yeah. There have been a number of people who've lost eyes and had other kinds of damage from these quote unquote, you know, non-lethal crowd disperse techniques. Alice.
3: So I am highlighting a piece by my colleagues. It's called States Brace for Disasters as Pandemic Collides with Hurricane Season by Dan Goldberg and Brianna Ely. And it's basically. We're now coming up on hurricane season, as well as other natural disasters that could happen. And not only are the emergency management and all the officials who respond to these different things stretched so thin already by participating in, in the pandemic response efforts. We're short staffed heading into that time, but also there's a lot of concern about how the things that we normally do for disasters, like evacuating people and keeping them in shelters, or all of these different things, could be themselves risks for spreading coronavirus. Also mentioned in the piece, um, heat waves in major cities, including New York, where people um, who can't afford air conditioning go to these cooling centers, that could also be a risk. And so A lot of states are scrambling right now to not only plan for these natural disasters but also to plan in a way that can keep people safe, wearing masks, socially distant in contexts where that's very challenging.
0: All right. Well, mine is from the New York Times. It's called The CDC Waited Its Entire Existence for This Moment. What Went Wrong? It is by an entire team of reporters, Eric Lipton, Abby Goodnow, Michael Shear, Megan Toohey, a Apoor of Amanda Villy, Sherry Fink, and Mark Walker. It is a deep dive, a very deep dive. I actually listened to the audio version, which is really cool, but it was 37 minutes long. Uh, into the CDC's role or more accurately non-role in the COVID-19 epidemic. Uh, It seemed to be a combination of long-standing underfunding, weak leadership and not surprising partisan politics. I found it well worth my time and you can read it or listen to it so that is our show for this week as always if you enjoyed the podcast you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast we'd appreciate it if you left us a review that helps other people find us too special thanks as always to our intrepid producer francis ying who makes us all sound okay even though we are in different places also as always you can email us your comments or questions we're at whatthehealth at kff.org all one word or you can tweet me i'm at j rovner at mary agnes Carey at alice holstein at joanne kennan we will be back in your feed next week in the meantime
2: be healthy